I know that voice very well because I listened to it on Monday. Oh, for these football times, uh, interview podcast. Yeah, they're good guys. You know, I've spoken to all of them. Yeah, I'm aware of that, Johnny. Yes. So, so thanks for letting me join past this illustrious group. Isn't it just? I'm talking to Stephen very soon just to balance it out as well. I'm sure he'll have a different view on, on the Merseyside scene than what I will have. Just, yes, because he's from t'other side of Stanley Park. So yeah, I will... The, the dark side, yeah. So, yes, correct. Where are you? Are you in Liverpool? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in North Liverpool, a place called Crosby, which is where Carlo Ancelotti used to live for a while. Oh, of course. Uh, are you near Merchant Taylor's school? I am literally five minutes walk from Merchant How Taylor's school. How wonderful. I've not been, but that is the sister school, because I was at Merchant Taylor's uh, Moor Park. Oh, right. There's two Merchant Taylors by me. There's the girls' school, which is uh-huh. literally two minutes walk, and the boys' school, which is a which is five minute walk. Yeah, so it's a famous landmark and a famous school. That's right. The phrase sixes and sevens comes about because there were certain companies, livery companies in London, and sometimes oh. one of them was six and one of them was seven, and Merchant Taylors was one of those two. Um, oh, right. Hence why Taylors is such a beloved institution. I don't know who went to the one in Liverpool, but the one in Moor Park had Riz Ahmed. The actor Riz Ahmed is an old yeah, boy. Yeah. But next time I go to Liverpool, and it will be soon because I hope to stay in the Dixie Dean Hotel at some point. Yeah, I mean, that's a very suitable choice of venue. As we will discover on Monday, yeah. because we're in the middle of Scouse Fortnight. Not just Scouse Week, <laughs> Scouse Fortnight. Although I could probably stretch it to Scouse Month, because in my hand... Uh, I've got Brian Barwick's new book, um, 60 yeah, Years of Red and Counting, which is uh, published yeah. by Pitch, which is the finest publishing house. Your book, The Forgotten Champions, deals with uh, the other side who haven't won a First Division title or Premier League title since 1986, right? Since 1987. Since 1987, of course. Um, <laughs> you know what I meant. Um, I, I know, I know. I, I, I just... I, I'm very finicky about ever since so when, when, when uh, things kind of uh, get manipulated slightly. My, in my lifetime, the only thing Everton have won is the FA Cup in 95. And I, for yeah. some reason, I have a photographic recall of Paul Rideout's goal because I was seven. I saw it on TV. Gosh. It was notable because Manchester United, who were notionally my team, lost. Mm-hmm. And I, it, I, if I got it right, it's kind of a near-range finish past Schmeichel. Yeah, I mean, it was a rebound, wasn't it? I mean, Graham Stewart had the chance to actually score. He headed against the bar, and as it came back from yeah. the bar, all right, that was there to nod it in. Yeah, I seem to remember the crossbar taking part in this. Were you at that game at Wembley? <laughs> Stupid question. Of course you were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was such a... We didn't quite notice at the time that I was going to be our last taste of silverware. Were you with your wife, Janet? At that one, no. Uh, I, I was actually with, 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 with my dad at that one. Uh-huh. And have you told your son, Mark, about that great day? I mentioned my son, Mark, in the book at the start, and obviously he's of the view that all I do is bang on about Everson's past, and to him, because he's only 20, it means absolutely nothing because he's never seen him with anything. Oh, gosh, yes, he was born into a very perilous time in Everton's history because I've spoken to Jim Keoghan about yeah. highs, lows and back yokers. I've not yet spoken to Simon Hart, who wrote a book about Everton in the 80s, but there's a big... Pick up. Uh, when Davy Moyes came in, he really rescued the club. Yeah, he did. I mean, uh, he's give, he gave Everson their only top four finish since, like, since the 87-88 season, 
where Everton were when he joined and then where he took them to during his time in charge. It, it, was, it was a very underrated achievement at the time. It was just kind of a pity that his departure from Everton was kind of tangled up with the rancor of a not extending his contract. So Everton didn't get a payout when he left and he came back and tried to buy Leighton Baines. And so a, a few things subsequently kind of tarnished his reputation a little bit. Mm, Although he is doing magnificently and he doesn't get the credit because his name isn't Moisinho. But the football that he's playing at West Ham must be very similar to what he was doing at Everton. Yeah, I I think so. I I would just say that he's had access to more funds at West Ham than he had during his time at Everton. So he's been able to bring in some some high-quality players. I'm always been quite a David Moyes fan, so uh, I was actually quite pleased to see that he's actually turned things around at West Ham. Kind of restored his, his reputation because there was a, a, a spell after he left Man United, and he was quite disappointed at Real Sociedad and at Sunderland when his reputation appeared to be on the decline. So I'm glad he's re-established himself, and I can certainly see Moyes after this job potentially being a candidate for a, a final throw as being the Scotland national manager. Oh, that's a good call. Although Steve Clark seems to have that job for life if he qualifies for the, <laughs> yeah, he does. the World Cup. I spoke to a chap who's a Kilmarnock fan, and uh, the worst thing to happen to Kilmarnock was Steve Clark doing really, really well there because he's doing great things. But yeah, you don't you don't not learn anything if you're Mourinho's number two at Chelsea as he was. Um, exactly. current, currently, Everton's manager, whom I'll talk about with David Prentice, the aforementioned, whose family has a share in the Dixie Dean Hotel. I'm talking to him. Thank you. Thank you. I've spoken to him a few months ago. It will go out as part of Scouse Fortnight next week as we speak, as well as my chat with Brian Viner. Yeah. Hello, Brian. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 he used to live not too, no, not too far from here before we Southport, so I've read his book, Looking for the Toffees, about the Everton team in the 70s. So, yeah, very highly rated journalist Brian is, and a, a lifelong blue. I loved that book, as I'll talk about with Brian, but it's his quest to track down every member yeah, of a team yeah, that yeah. he remembers from childhood. It's a bit different yeah. with you and the 86-87 team. I don't know if you know this. Last time Everton won the First Division or the Premier League was in 1987. Some fools yes. say 86, uh, and <laughs> they are the forgotten champions of 86-87. Just remind me what happened in 86 with Everton well, I mean, at the end of 85-86. I mean, yeah, well, uh, I think as a cover in the book at the start, uh, Johnny, uh, that was such a such a traumatic finale to the season because at one stage we looked nailed on to win the double. We were in pole position. All we had to do was win our last three league games and win our win the cup final against Liverpool, and the double would have been ours. And we somehow contrived to lose one nil away at Oxford United, and this story is kind of wrapped up with Gavin Lineker allegedly bringing the wrong pair of boots to the game and having to play in a different pair of boots that were size too big for him, so he missed a number of chances that cost us dearly. And then after the bitter disappointment of, of blowing the league championship, which would have been our, our second consecutive league championship, in the cup final, we're 1-0 up, we're cruising, there's 30 minutes to go, and then a misplaced pass by fullback Gary Stevens ends up in Liverpool's possession, they break away, they score, it's one each, they score two more goals, and that journey home from Wembley, as I say in the book, was one of the worst journeys home I've ever had to endure in my life. Because when five of us went down to that one together, and uh, we just came back in an absolute state of total despondency and depression. And during that following summer, there just appeared to be absolutely nothing to look forward to from an Everton point of view, because we had to endure the summer of Liverpool's double, the, the victory parade, the newspaper coverage, and it, it, it was almost an unbearable time. Um, of course, when we get to the stars of the season, 
Gavin Lineker is gone. We're missing five key players. The signs that have come in and the hardly inspired the fans. So, it, you know, it, things did not look promising at the start of that year. And all the worse, of course, because of what happened at Heysel in 1985. And it seems, it seems unreal in two parts. One, English clubs couldn't compete in Europe, whereas England could quite obviously go to the World Cup in 86. <laughs> Which you, which you mentioned, which I've never even thought about. I've never put two and two together because these players in 85-86 couldn't play European competition and then they're expected to play against Maradona in 86. No wonder Argentina won. Uh, and the other thing is just the, the paucity of television because it was 85-86 was the blackout. ITV had pulled things together. I didn't realise no match of the day highlights in 86. I kind of have a vague memory of this, but you know how it is. You go back and check things to make sure your, rec- your recollections are accurate. And uh, I have a book of my collection, you know, uh, History of Match of the Day, with a record of every game that was on Match of the Day. And the only highlight package Match of the Day showed in 86-87 was from the FA Cup. There were no league highlight packages at all on BBC. And so really, you know, part of the reason why this, I think this championship's gone under the radar to some extent is you can only access Everson games via regional ITV TV. And of course... Although some of the games were shown in Northwest of England, they weren't shown nationally. So, yeah, I mean, back at TV coverage was a massive factor as well. I know it wasn't just Everton who were affected by Heisel. You know, I know my nicer were, I know Nottage City were. Uh, Coventry. So, there were Coventry, of course, they were the cup that season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a few teams affected, but uh, given that was probably the best team in our history, you know, I think most rational Everton fans would, would make the case that Heisel cost Everton more dearly than any other club at that time. I think I think some would still argue that the, the ramifications and the effects of that still live on now. Well, yeah, you give the figure, and I believe this, of half a million pounds. Because if you are getting TV rights for European games and hosting them, it, nowadays it's ghastly, but in... In the 80s, when the pennies went further, what was it? Dave Watson cost about 850,000. So yeah, could, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you could have bought a new player with that half a million pound, which would have then compound, uh, compounded. So you would have done well in 87, in 88. Um, there was one game live on the BBC on a Sunday, which Everton were involved in, and there were extended highlights of that. Uh, who was the manager of the opposition? The clue is... He was not in charge a month after that game. Oh, not Lancaster. Yeah, I knew you were. Yeah. You're playing dumb. I like I like to do these quizzes. I've done it with Jeff. I've done it with uh, Stephen. I've done it with Stu. I'll do it with you. I will get to these football times later. I'm just trying to plug this excellent book, um, The Forgotten Champions. <laughs> I know it's early as well, but you're a teacher. You should be used to pop quizzes. I used to do lots, lots of pop quizzes. Yeah, that was a, that, that was one of our big things, and in in, certainly in the uh, mid eighties and into most of the nineties. And then, you know, unfortunately, internet, Google, things like that just kind of destroyed those sorts of quizzes. So I've not done one for a while. Uh, um, yes, it was Everton versus Manchester United. Ron Atkinson's Man U, who were hopeless, uh, and Everton won. Yeah, yeah, three one. Uh, and if you look at the goals again from that game, you, you can just see. Uh, how Everson really made the best of what they had and I think that was the game as well when Paul Power finally realised he was being accepted by the Everson fans because his cross for, for Graham Sharp's opening goal you know, uh, certainly uh, it just it showed, showed the fans what he was going to bring to the team and, and what we'd been missing it, it by not having you know, Pat Van and as, as a marauding left back pushing forward and I think as I mentioned in the book as well when we touched upon the TV thing the attendance for that was 25,000 and certainly 
in, in the mid to late 80s, live television definitely had a negative impact on the tenants because I think normally an Everton Man United game would chat 40,000 plus. So there was definitely an element that, that uh, given the, the economic situation Merseyside at the time, I think there some families were, families were faced with the choice of do we pay and go to the match or do we actually save money and watch the game on TV? Yeah. Yeah, which is why it was so much more disgusting that. The Premier League charged is it fifteen pounds to watch I Follow? I don't know if you paid for it. No, I, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I mean, fortunately, that, that plan didn't last for too long, did it? I, mm. I, I full credit to the fan groups there for you know. I think Leeds United in particular led quite a strong campaign. Well, to, there's to a vested interest there because Ratchatani owns a TV company, so yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard, yeah but yeah, all the same, yeah. Um, yeah. I've actually I've gone off football. I know we're talking a few weeks before the Z Cars Derby. Uh, it was the inspiration, <laughs> originally the inspiration for this, because it's Watford-Liverpool this weekend, dilly-ding, dilly-dong. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then Liverpool, uh, Everton-Watford is on the, is it the 23rd or the 2nd? I can't remember. It's the 23rd. It is the 23rd, 20, yes. 23rd, yeah. yeah. And uh, if I could just push a plug in here as well, I've actually got an article on the Everton programme for that game. Oh, Mazel Tov, um, yeah. Yeah, about... Um, Andy Rankin, who was a goalkeeper for Everson in the, in the 60s and moved to Watford in the 70s. Yeah. So there's yeah. a bit of a link there between the two clubs. Don't you dare mention the 84 FA Cup final. <laughs> no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> he, 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 he finished playing by then. But yeah, I mean, no, you look back at the 84 FA Cup final and uh, always felt on the day that for Watford it was a day out, for yeah. us it was everything. And, and that was the difference. Uh, Wilf Rostra nearly scored. Did you think that was in when he shot from a long no. way out? No, I, I mean, I think even Watford had scored. I think the atmosphere amongst you know we have a strange atmosphere of optimism, which is an unusual sensation amongst both Everton fans. But you just had the feeling that on the day there was just no way this team were going to lose, and I think that that came about because of the, the, the tremendous end to the uh, eighty-four, eighty-five season, but also from the previous semi-final when we scored an extra time with three minutes to go against Southampton at Highbury, and that kind of just sent the belief surging through the fans and the team. And yeah, and you did well to win that match. Um, and uh, true or false, Andy Gray kicked the ball out of Stevie Sherwood's hand, and the goal would have been disallowed today. <laughs> if Steve Sherwood had had full control of the ball in his hands, then Andy Gray's goal would never happen. But go, goalkeeping calamities happen, don't they, Johnny? They do. Well, in '87, uh, were you interested in what was going on with uh, Watford in the '87 FA Cup semi-final? Do you remember this? Well, uh, in '87. FA Cup semi-final were Watford playing was, was it Tottenham? Yeah it was Tottenham who eventually lost to Coventry who yeah. who who knocked out Wimbledon in that year's FA Cup? Yeah it was Watford wasn't it? Hey so we could have played you it could have been Watford <laughs> Everton in the FA Cup it could have been yeah, a repeat Indeed I mean Johnny I, I, you, you probably know it's in the room but I mean, I've got a vague connection with Watford because I mentioned uh, the journalist for ICV a guy called Paul Davis who's been with ICV for years now. I don't know if he's still with him, he must be like in his early 60s now, but he was a massive Watford fan. And his girlfriend's dope fiancée at the time was a girl called Elaine Lamming. And he used to take her to watch Watford games. So there was one weekend that went down to see my brother who was working in Hampshire, and we messed up with Paul Davis and, his, and Elaine at, at the Watford Everson game in 83-84, which I think ended up being a four-all draw. So mm-hmm. there's a bit of a connection there with Watford as well. Yeah, I asked my cousin Daniel if he'd been mascot for that game. Because he, oh, right. because Daniel was very young, was involved in the family enclosure at Watford, and he wasn't. He was mascot for the 5-0 right. at Goodison the right. next season. Right. Um, <laughs> 
Because, yeah, there was the 4-4, the 5-0, and then the 2-0 at Wembley, where Elton John cried. Did you see Elton at Wembley? Did you know where he was sitting? Yeah, because uh, probably with the recipe, I was probably involved in singing a few songs about one of the days, so there, there you go. I think, also you have to kind of factor in what a big event the FA Cup final was in the 80s. You know, it was all-day, non-stop TV coverage, and the cameras were following the, the teams all the way from the hotel to, yeah. to Wembley stage. So, oh, I know, I've asked uh, you, yeah. Stu Horsfield... The biggest fan of the FA Cup. Yeah. That was his, his yeah. shtick. And you can listen to Stu's conversation. Have you read his book about Brazil 82? Yeah, I have. I mean, Stu's a really, really talented writer. He, he brings history back to life in terms of football. But I loved all the Stu's stars. I thought like my father figured his life and how he did because they didn't support him, a football team. And then his research in that Brazil 82 side. And yeah, I mean, we all remember those as a certain age, that Brazil 82 team. And the uh, also disappointment when they lost to Italy. Yeah, the the remembered runners-up, they weren't the forgotten runners-up. I mean, the Brazil 82 story is, is much told. You were able to remember football in the 80s uh, because there's a brilliant piece on these football times that you've written about your first match. This is back in 62-63, away at Ewood Park. Uh, Everton were top of the table. And you say that most supporters wore suits 60 years ago now. Do you think we should bring it back? Do you think Everton should have like the last game at Goodison Park in 2024? Everyone should dress up in a suit. Bring rattles. Do you know what, Johnny? That is actually not a bad idea. Because when you think that, I think certain clubs like Hardicool always mm. always dress up for the last away game of the season. So, yeah, I mean, certainly when we're in Goodison Park, there needs, there needs to be some kind of a you know, commemorative ritual to, to say goodbye to the stadium. And that's why I kind of mentioned at the end of the book that I think it would be a brilliant idea to bring back the 86-87 side but like, mm. you know, uh, uh, to be introduced to the crowd again as the last team. Because, uh, you know, although I'd love us to win the Premier League next two seasons, Goodison Park, I can't see it happening realistically. Uh, so I think that would be a tremendous idea. They're all alive. The, all the team, the I think... I was with Trevor Stephen a few weeks ago. I mean, you, you know the film Howard's Way, uh, which Rob Sloman brought out, commemorating the 84-85 side in particular. But he asked me to do a question and answer with Trevor Stephen before a screening of the film here in Crosby. So it, it was just, you know, for me, even now I get, oh, God, I'm meeting Everton player. You know, you, it, it just uh, sends butterflies through your stomach. But, yeah, I mean, but most of that team, most of that team still look in exceedingly good health. Uh, they all, all seem to be doing well. Most of them are, like, in the early 60s. So, yeah, I mean, that'll be, to me, that'll be... Uh, and if Colin Harvey is still fit enough uh, to have him join that team as well as the coach for that season... Big Nev, we know what Big Nev is doing. There's this magnificent piece that you've written summarising the life and work of Big Nev, uh, the best goalkeeper in the world at that time. Uh, I, I really don't think there's any debate about that, John. No, there isn't. There isn't. Uh, it's a statement of fact. This is yeah, fact. Yeah, These are the facts. I, 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 I agree, and I think if you if you take the time to look at some YouTube clips from the Eversons in the mid eighties, there are some matches that you know have uh, kind of gone on the radar. You, you forget how good he was in certain matches. I mean, I wrote an article about our quarter final FA Cup with a Notts County in eighty four when we won two one. I watched the highlights again when I was researching the article, and I couldn't believe the number of stupendous saves Southall was just routinely pulling off during the game. So yeah. Uh, an absolute perfectionist in the goalkeeping arts as well. You know, somebody who would spend hours and hours by himself after training, uh, stopping shots, working on his positioning. So, yeah, and, uh, at that time, undoubtedly the best goalkeeper if, you know, in Europe and all over the world. Yeah, and according to Pat Jennings, there's not much wrong with him, apparently. Uh, the last... <laughs> yeah. 
The last Pat goalkeeper. Jennings, same thing as Shubhak goalkeepers. Yeah, indeed. Massive hands, Pat Jennings. I've seen yeah. that. Ex-Watford as well. Indeed. Uh, Nev was the last goalkeeper to be the FWA Player of the Year. He played he 751 yeah. times for his country. 92 caps for Wales. He is 11 days older than my dad, Neville Southall. Right. <laughs> uh, whereas if I do some quick mathematics, you were 31, and this is, this is in the book, you were 31 uh, as 86-7 kicked off. And it's been 35 years. So you are one of those Premier League match-going fans in their 60s. Uh, this is yeah. a long, long, long way removed from the boys' pen where you paid a shilling and sixpence, or seven and a half P, as it was then. Uh, tell me how awful it was. Oh, uh, I think it needs to give your, your listeners a warning before I go into Indeed. detail about Trigger it. Trigger warning. But, but yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely was. It, it was Lord of the Flies on Stevo. It, it, it really was. It was a, just a... a for, I think I was six or seven at the time when my dad suggested to go in there with my friend, and I've never been so frightened and petrified in my life. But I was relieved for all my coins and money within about five minutes of entering there. I was surrounded by some of the most hideous looking ferocious years I've ever come across in my life. I was there watching the bombardments as they threw canisters, containers full of water, or maybe something more noxious into the crowd in front of them. It was an absolute bear pit. And we came out after 15 minutes. We were absolutely terrified and spent the rest of the game outside the stage and more or less crying our eyes out on the wall outside the ground. But yeah, I mean, the, the whole concept of the boys' pen. And, and I think, as, as I mentioned there in, in the book, when I wrote that, there was a real divide in the pool that time between those of us who were growing up in the new leafy estates on the outskirts of the city to those who were still stuck in the old parts of the city and those who were still living in the old parts of the city were so much more streetwise and toughened up than what us suburban softies were that, you know, we were never, ever going to survive that experience. Very interesting, because Liverpool had been bombed to smithereens in the 40s and have been... You, there, are, there is evidence of what the government were trying to do in the 80s to manage the decline. But the everyman is open now. Uh, it is it just is. the Beatles-y stuff is, is still there uh, as the Beatles tourism. And you must be immensely proud of the city, the wondrous place, as it's been called. Yeah, that's the title of a book by Paul Noyan as well, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, just give a bit of a background. You mentioned the Beatles there. Uh, so uh, my wife uh, got a job... Uh, and Bevington High School on the Willow in, in the early 90s as a history teacher, taking the place of a guy called Billy Heckle, who had this idea when he was a history teacher Bevington to start doing weekend Beatles tours because he felt there was an untapped market there of tourists who'd be interested in the Beatles. And it, it went beyond his wildest expectations to have got to a stage where he had to make a decision either do this full-time or I stay in teaching, give it up. So he made the decision, and it was the right decision, to continue with the uh, with the Beatles tours. And so, yeah, so there's kind of a link there between our family and the Beatles revival. That's brilliant. Well, my favourite joke about the Beatles is Alan Partridge's favourite Beatles album is The Best of the Beatles. Uh, and that was the early 90s. And then came... <laughs> I, I listened to all the Beatles albums in the 2000s. They had the one collection... In 2000, McCartney's now releasing a book. There's this three-part, six-hour film over the end of November um, yeah. in consecutive days, which is going to destroy everyone's viewing patterns at the end of that month. And it, I've seen the trailers, and it's just... These are four young lads from Liverpool having fun and becoming the most successful musicians because they rode the wave of popularity. You would have enjoyed hearing the Beatles as its intended audience. As a kid, 
listening to Radio, not even Radio 1, before Radio no, 1. It was, it was at Major Luxembourg, wasn't yeah. I mean, Major Luxembourg was your, was your main app. And, but of course, don't forget as well, the big thing in the city was the pirate stations. So it was like a radio camera, we were playing like non-stop no, Beatles records most of the time as well. So you did, you, it, uh, arguably, uh, that was a far better range of stations to listen to than what happened when the BBC took over broadcasting with Radio 1, etc. But one of the great things about the Beatles sessions is that Brian Matthew had them in on the Saturday Club. Yeah. And yeah, they were just yeah, prattling right, around yeah. because these are guys... Yeah, yeah. Lennon was, what, 24 in 1965? These were very young men. Yeah, he's yeah, born in 1940, uh, so yeah, he, he would have been. And uh, yeah, I mean, they were just, I think they were succeeded by being themselves. And of course, them being themselves was something people weren't used to seeing because they, they were kind of come through at the end of the year. Uh, those who'd been, been involved in the Second World War had suffered the consequences of the Second World War. And it, it was quite interesting with the Beatles because you know, they, they never really declared any allegiance to football, particularly. I always kind of put that down to. They kind of grew up in Nero when football on Merseyside, success-wise, was a bit of a desert because you know, Everson were relegated in 1951. We came back up in 1954. The season Liverpool went down. Liverpool didn't come back up until 1962. So when they were in their teens, football wasn't particularly a massive thing in the city, maybe. I, I, I don't know. I, I know McCartney's kind of went pushed and said he's a, he's a blue, but he's always very dramatic on McCartney. He's a blue, like Liverpool, I think he, he, he kind of phrased it as. He is the Jamie Carragher of uh, pop music. <laughs> but actually, this <laughs> is a good question. Because uh, Carragher started off as a striker and a blue. He became a defender uh, for the red side. Um, but... He is now the most prominent Scouse voice amongst the Scouse Mafia on um, British uh, football. He's done very well for himself, Cara. Is there a grudging respect for Everton fans, from Everton fans uh, to Cara? Yeah, I, I think it would be joined because even though he, he obtained all his success playing for Liverpool, you know, most Everton fans know that you know, he was... He supported the Blues as a kid. His family were all Blues. I think his middle name is Lee, after Gordon Lee, the Everton manager at the mm-hmm. time. So, yeah, so he's definitely... Uh, you know, we, we understand that deep down he's a Blue. And uh, I always remember one time, uh, Sam Adelice, when he's in charge, he after being injured after a cup game at West Ham, and Callum's asked him a few questions. I think Adelice says to him, oh, Jamie, come up, come down the train now, come and see me. Come on, let's face it, you're a Blue, aren't you? You're a Blue, you haven't given up on that, have you? So that, that was actually good to see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, Jamie Carragher, uh, strangely enough, in a previous life, he used to be a school teacher, and um, my, my headmaster, his brother, was Jamie Carragher's primary school head teacher, and Jamie Carragher came to this guy's funeral a year ago in February when he died. Oh, very nice. It's so tight knit. I grew up in the Jewish community of Northwest London, and that's quite tight knit. But yeah, the Scouse community, everyone looks after each other. Um, they will lift you over the gate. Were you lifted over yeah. the gate in the uh, early days of your football fandom in the 60s? Yeah, I, I certainly was. It was more on the occasion. I mean, I must have, I mean, although I remember the Blackburn game vividly for 62-63, I, I did go to a few home games that season, but which I don't remember quite the same detail. But uh, what I can recall from that time is, I think towards the end of the season, when there were some really key games coming up to see if that was the new title, that my dad used to take me in the seating enclosures in, in the stands and he, he'd lift me over the turnstiles to, to get me into the stage. And I think that was quite a common thing at the time that, that parents with young kids would just lift the kid over the turnstile and then sit them on their lap during the course of the game. Uh, yes, I did wonder how that worked. But then, what if you were in the terraces? 
But I, I don't I don't think you could do that to the same sense of intelligence because if you were a small kid, it was almost impossible to find a suitable advantage of it of you. You could have gone with your dad who might have reserved your space on the terrace. But then at ten to three you can guarantee about five hundred people come would come in straight from the pub without no cars or shuffling out of the way and taking up your space to watch the game. So anyone with any sense would not have taken the young kids to to stand on the terrace. You, you, you would have paid the extra and just taken them with you because at that time Everson like most football stadiums, has had four seating areas across all four sides of the ground, which is why it was picked to be a World Cup semi-final venue. So, yeah, it, it's, it was definitely more of a thing that if you sat in the stands, that's what you did. Were you upset that in 1966, England against Portugal was moved to Wembley and thus it was the Soviet Union against West Germany at Goodison? Starts on this, Johnny. I, I went to all the I went to all the World Cup games in Goodison about ten at the time, and then it, was, it was one of the happiest days of, of my life when I when I woke, woke up one morning and alongside the bedside table, my dad left and said, "You might want to look inside there." I looked inside, and there was tickets for all five games in Goodison. And of course, <clears throat> there's still some debate about which schedule was being followed, but there were certainly two different schedules going around. But one the the one that most people refer to seemed to indicate that Everson were going to, to be hosting the World Cup semi-final. Now, if you bear in mind, England played Poland at January in 19, five months before the, uh, the World Cup started. They obviously had an idea that Goodison Park might be getting used for the venue, and, and I think they won one now. I think it was at that game as well. But certainly, uh, for some reason, it, it, it just um, upset the fan base here, because most people had bought the tickets, A, to the World Cup, but also B, because they thought there was a really good chance that England would be playing Portugal uh, in the semi of Goodison Park. And when the competition first started, when people were giving out tickets to fans because they couldn't sell all the tickets, Goodison Park had the highest attendance outside of London there for any game. And so, in some ways, I would argue, it would have been more to England's advantage to play the semi at Goodison because they would have that passionate crowd right on the touchline there getting behind the team. Yeah, exactly. I John Ray Wilson. It, it, it would have left a really sour taste. And uh, there are still people today who have never forget, forgiven England for making that change. And also, kind of what's not talked about too much is that that game was on the course, the quarter final game all played on the Saturday. Now, Portugal played North Korea on the Saturday, beat them 5 3, one of the best games of football I've ever seen. The semi final, which used to be played at Goodison on the Monday, if England and Portugal had been joined to play on the Monday. So basically, Instead of Portugal missing a day's training to go down to London to play practice for the, uh, to prepare for the semi-final, it would have been England leaving London and then coming to lose a day's training to play Goodison Park. So, interesting to work out. But I think it always quite likely that the national team played all their games at Wembley. And you know, to some extent, if, if you watched the 1966 film Goal and look at how the glamorous lifestyle of London is compared with the slum streets of Liverpool, it is absolutely libelous and scandalous. Mm. Because at that time, Liverpool in 19. 1966. There was only one reason why London was cool in 1966 because the Beatles um, and, and where the Beatles come from? Oh, they came from Liverpool. Yeah, so so there, there was a, a, a real feeling there that you know uh, the city should have been given the opportunity to host England playing against Portugal in the semi-final. I, yeah, uh, part of the reason was that the um, FA thought the, the way, if the Soviet Union played Germany at the West Germany at, at Wembley, it wouldn't have sold out. Judging yeah. by the number of West German fans who made the shift to Merseyside, that was a serious misjudgment. Two things from that. Uh, Stanley Rouse, as the president of FIFA, very interesting that the decision was made. And the second one is that the, that goal film, you know who wrote the script for the film? 
It's a Brian Glanville. Brian Glanville. And uh, I won't miss a chance to plug my two-parter. There's a documentary about the life and times of Brian. And I spoke with Mark, his son. Brian is suffering yeah, from yeah. dementia, Alzheimer's. And uh, I hope that his oh, last few years are relatively pain-free. Oh, I'm, I'm really shocked to hear that. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up Brian Glanville watches reports in the Sunday Times. And you, you may have heard of a circle football magazine that came out in the 70s called Foul. Yes. And they used to, have a, yeah, they, they, they used to always do, like, weekly columns making fun of Brian Glanville and how he advises young journalists how to write articles and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, I have also recalled the time when Brian Glanville wrote for the Sunday people because, in his words, they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Yeah, and one of the things I talk about is the dichotomy between... It's kind of a loser's game. If you're writing for a popular paper, you're, why? And if you're writing for a broadsheet paper, why? Because it's, it's football, it's a toy department. Uh, but we all follow in Brian's wake. Uh, there are two types of journalists, those who've been influenced by Brian and those who should have been. Uh, and Paul McPartland, in the second half, we will talk about your book, The Forgotten Champions... Uh, Everton's 86-87 season. We'll ask if football was better in the olden days. Uh, but for now, let's have some half-time oranges or maybe some toffees. Maybe toffees <laughs> is probably more appropriate. Just, just, before, just before you move on, uh, Brian Glanville uh, used to be just on the chance person in the, in the early 80s. And there's always a phrase that you had to check up because you'd never heard it before. He once referred to Mark Haley being a centre-forward, sweet generi. So I checked, you know, the Italian diction went out and went a centre of our times. Absolutely brilliant. And he also once referred to Trevor Stephen of Everson being Stakhanovite in his performance. Mm. And none of, none of us knew what that meant. In the Everson program, the first one week, they did an article about it to say they t- they'd gone to Trevor Stephen, they checked up in the dictionary, and they now understood what it meant. I think, I think that's a, a good word to use. Stakhanovite just means kind of hard-working, no questions asked. Yeah, yeah. I, boxer yeah, from yeah. Animal Farm is Stakhanovite. The horse. Yeah, 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 